this series called The Movement. And just the idea of the movement is we've looked at the book of Acts, which is the fifth book in the Bible, looking at the way that the church began from a group of small group of followers who who believed in Jesus. They walked with him, then they saw him suffer, they saw him be crucified and die, be buried, and then they saw him alive. They saw him rise from the dead. And because of that, they believed, man, this is really this is real. This is God himself who's become a man and he holds the key to eternal life. And so those group of followers, they took that message and they started spreading what was known as, you know, the church, what would become known as the church. But it formed as not an institution based around a place you'd go or a building, but more about a gathering of people who are committed to, to a movement, to spreading the, the message of the resurrection of Jesus, that it's in his, his life, his death, his resurrection, that we can find a new life. We can find hope for this life. And so that message captured the hearts of many people. On the very first Sunday, that, or not Sunday, but on the very first day that they had their church gathering, their first grand opening, like I shared about ours, they had 3,000 people respond when Peter got up and he delivered a message and he told people, here's what you need to know, and he told people to turn their lives to God through Jesus. And 3,000 people responded. And not long after that, another 2,000 people. And this movement just took off. And in a city of that size, in Jerusalem, which wasn't a very, very large city, when 5,000 people, 8,000 people, 10,000 people started turning their hearts to God, everybody was aware. It wasn't like this underground movement. It was very much out in the streets. And so because of that, the enemies of Christianity, the people who rejected Jesus, the strict Jewish leaders, they tried to stamp it out. They did that by rounding up the, the followers of Christ, threatening them, beating them, and warning them not to say anything else about Jesus. And the disciples, they, they really had a choice to make, and they decided, we can't keep silent. We've seen something here. We know something to be true. We've seen it with our own eyes, and we can't stay silent. So kill us if you will, but we're going to keep on advancing. So they kept advancing. Well, the Jewish leaders, they had figured out this group of 12 apostles were so um, persuasive, and the crowds were so being influenced by what they were saying, that if, they were, if the Jewish leaders were to round up these apostles, they might get killed themselves. They might get stoned. The crowds may turn on them. And so instead they take a guy named Stephen, who they, round, they get Stephen, he's a, a newly appointed leader, and they, they kill him as an example. And then what that does was they watched to see if they could get away with it, and they could. And then the Jewish leaders, they began this full court press persecution on the church. And because of that, most of the Christians in Jerusalem left. They left Jerusalem and they, they left what they knew, where they were, and they just went and formed new lives. They headed into different areas, new village, new, new areas, and the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And this movement kept spreading, but the aggression of the Jewish religious leaders went after those people who had left. And so from city to city, town to town, Christians were being drugged back to Jerusalem, tried as Christians and killed. And there was a man named Paul. We shared his story last week. Paul was a man that he, was, he had authority to drag people out of their homes, take them back to have them tried and then killed in Jerusalem. And on the way to, on the way to Damascus, the city where he was going to do this thing of dragging Christians out of their homes, on the way there, he's blinded by this unspeakable light. Jesus begins to speak to him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and through the course of this interaction, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new mission for your life. You're going to be the person that's going to reach 
all the non-Jews in the entire known world, and you're going to be used to start little movements and spread this message outside of Jerusalem. You're going to go reach the people that have no church background. All those non-church people, Paul, you're going to be the guy. And Paul, as he was doing this, he was planting, or he led a church planting movement. He was just, everywhere he went, little gatherings were, were forming. He didn't stay there very long. Some of the places he did over the course of time, but he would plant these churches, he'd establish leaders, and then little local churches would sprout up. And he'd keep in touch through letters and visits. But when he went over, whenever he went to the churches, he wanted people to be able to answer the question, how can I be forgiven? How do I really know God? What does it mean to be connected to God? He, he was all about that message. And everywhere Paul went, he's sprouting this message. And while he's out throughout the Mediterranean planting churches, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, there's a controversy. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, a controversy begins over how good people need to be. So I want to try to give you a picture. The Jerusalem church is kind of the headquarter Christian church. But the movement had pushed out. All the key church leaders were in Jerusalem. But they sent Paul to spread this message throughout the Mediterranean, planting churches. So as he's doing that, and as people are responding, meanwhile, back at home, this big controversy breaks out over several questions. One is, who should be part of the church? Here's one of the questions that came up in this controversy. Who, who gets to be in? The, the crew in Jerusalem, they were really concerned about all these new Christians all these new non-Jewish people who are turning to Christ all around. They kept hearing these reports. Yeah, this message is, is advancing. All these non-Jewish people are becoming Christians. But they begin to think quality control. How do we know these, these people are getting it? How do we know that they're really getting the right message? How do we know that they're good enough to be part of this church? Who gets in? It's one of the questions they asked. Or how holy do you need to be? How good do you need to be? How many rules in the Bible do you need to keep to be a part of the church? This Jerusalem church, they're trying to figure this stuff out. Who really gets in? How much of your life do you need to clean up before you come to church, before you can be called a Christian? The big, big issue was how good is good enough. And this little controversy, as soon as it reaches the new Christians that are outside of Jerusalem, and they're hearing about there's this mother church that's disappointed or that they're trying to control our growth, they're confused. They're all very, very confused because they're thinking, hey, Paul came to our town. He told us that all we needed to do is believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he was risen from the dead, and we put our life and trust in him, and we'll be saved. And now, now we're hearing that it's not that simple. Now we're hearing that there's things we need to do, that we need to clean up, clean up our lives, and that there's restrictions on our life. And the leaders in Jerusalem are like, yeah, hold on, guys. It's not that simple. There's a little more to it than what you were told. There's a few hoops you need to jump through. In fact, you really need to clean up your act. If you're going to be church people, the church in Jerusalem was saying to everyone else, if you're going to be like us, then you need to kind of clean up your act before you can be considered part of this movement. And after you do that, once you start acting like us, looking like us, talking like us, dressing like us, using the phrases we use, then you can be one of us. And it's because of this attitude, even today, people have abandoned the church. People think, I'm not good enough to be a church person. I know what goes on, or I think I know what goes on in the church. And I, if I set foot in the doors of the church, that building's going to collapse. Heard that many times. 
Or, you know, I could never do that. I've done so much wrong and I could never be that person to. I'm not good enough to relate to the church people. We all know. We all know where we're at, though. We all know, well, I've thought that or I've or maybe I've been that person. But this controversy, all oh, it got everybody all messed up. And one of the big challenges was that Jesus, when he came, he embodied John, the, the writer, one of the writers in the Bible. He said that Jesus in his life and his ministry, he embodied what's known as grace and truth. He embodied all of grace, which is grace means unearned favor. Like God, we were accepted by God, not because of anything we did, not because of how good we were, not because we had it all right, but because God was gracious enough to say, I sent my son to die for you. I offered him up freely for you. You didn't do anything to earn this. It wasn't because you were good enough, but I loved you enough to, to be gracious to you. So Jesus was all of grace, and at the same time, the Scripture says, he was also all of truth. He was kind of this person that embodied all grace, all truth. And that is something that we as the church have a hard time reconciling. How do we do that? How do we extend an offer of love and grace and forgiveness to people? And at the same time, how do we be faithful to what's in this book and to teach the truth about what God says the Christian life is about? Because there's things in here that are very much like law. And and we wrestle with this stuff. So this controversy erupts, and there's this first century, first church business meeting. And I don't know if you've ever been to a church business meeting, but sometimes they can get kind of nasty. And so this was their first church business meeting. It's in Acts 15, verse 1. It says this. Take a look. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Now, pause there for a second. There's some people that came down from Judea, which is the Jerusalem church. Okay? There was people from the mother church that came down from the mother church, went to the new believers church. Okay? And they go to the group of the brothers. The brothers are these new Christians who are not Jews. They, weren't, they didn't have a church background. They weren't Jewish they weren't Jewish people. These were Gentiles. And there's these new brothers that this headquarter church sends this group to. And they said this, unless you are circumcised, so here's the message from the mother church, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What? Unless you have a surgery, you can't be a part of this movement. That's the message that the church in Jerusalem is telling All these new churches that are, well, this one church, but this is the message that's going to spread. Unless you're circumcised, follow the laws of Moses, you can't be saved. Now, just think about this. Think about the people who are in that church. Think of how uneasy you would be at that point. I imagine the new members class for this church was all women. You know, they're at the new church. Hey, we're going to have a new membership class. If you want to be part of our church, you know. We've got some guys from Jerusalem coming in. Here's what they're saying, you know. People driving up to the church. Let's go, honey. Yeah, why don't you go in there and take care of that. Sign some paperwork for me. I'm going to sit out here in the car. Got some thinking to do. Or I'm going to have to really pray about that, you know. Because they were asking them, grown men. This is not like them saying, hey, we're going to start having a surgery to circumcise these eight-year-old babies like they would do to the Jewish boys that would be born. He's saying, all y'all adults, all you men, you need to have a surgery if you're going to be part of the church. 
So just try to picture that. Unless you brothers become like one of us, unless you become Jewish all the way, you can't be saved, is what the message was. But the problem is they were taught, all these new Christians were taught by Paul that they were saved by grace through faith alone. That was it. That was all they knew. And now they learned that they were being challenged. Then we read this in verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So Paul and Barnabas, the church leaders at this new church with all these new Christians, they, they were, the messengers come, they have this discussion, and then Paul's like, wait a second. We're going to have to go talk to the mother church. We're going to have to go to Jerusalem and straighten this thing out. So we're told that when they came to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem, and he says, look, guys, we need to talk. What is going on here? You see, he says, I've been traveling around the Mediterranean for the past year and a half. A large number of Gentiles have become Christian. They've made Jesus the boss of their life. But I've never put restrictions on them before they follow Jesus. Where are all these mixed messages coming from? He's like, What's, why are you throwing this in there now? Then verse 5 says, But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said, It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So Paul gets this message, and it's driving the message is this strict group of Pharisees that had become Christians, this strict law-abiding group of Jews that had become Christians, and they're saying, look, these, these new Christians are fine to become Christians. They can be part of the church if they'll be circumcised, have a surgery, and then follow the law of Moses, which we're not just talking about the Ten Commandments that we might think of. What they have in mind is 613 different Old Testament laws that restrict eating habits, you know, dietary laws, daily laws, purification laws, food laws, worship laws. There's all this stuff, and they're saying, look, Paul, we want you to get back on the boat. You've done a good thing, brother. You've done a real good thing. We want you to go back on the boat and revisit all these churches that you've planted and let all those people that they need to have a surgery and then begin to adapt their life to 613 different laws, and then we'll vote on them being part of the church. And Paul's like, you've got to be kidding me. What am I supposed to do? And the people are like, look, Paul, we want them to belong to this movement, but first, before they can belong, they need to eat like us, they need to look like us, they need to dress like us, they need to talk like us. They need to have the surgery just to be fair that we've all had, all the men are like, it's just not fair. Verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up in the church. Peter's the, the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the, of the gospel and believe. See, God had already told Peter that he was going to be a messenger to non-Jewish people and he was going to share Jesus with them and that they could be included in the church. He said, I didn't get the message that they were going to be restricted and had to adapt to the Jewish way of living. Verse 8, he says, God, who knows the heart, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them. He accepted these outsiders, these non-church people, these Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. So P Peter Paul, he's like, God, who knows the heart. You see, I don't necessarily know your heart. I might know your behavior. I might know how you dress. I might know how you talk. I might know how you live. 
but I don't know your heart. And what Peter is saying is God, who knows the heart of all these new Christians, He has already accepted them. God already knows where they're at. In fact, verse 9 says, And He had made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Not by the law, not by them cleaning up their lives. God has already cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, this wasn't easy for the guys to accept. They struggled. They went back and forth. And so Peter then asks them a question. Verse 10. He says, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, meaning all these brand new Christians? Why are you putting a yoke on the neck of these brand new Christians that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's saying, Why are you, why are you doing that? Seriously. He probably looks around. Seriously, Bob. Bob. You... Brother, oh, I saw you offering an offering at the bringing your sin offering to the temple. Oh yeah, Bob's like, well, you know, I kind of screwed up last week and I had to take care of that at the temple. I'm all good now. And, you know, and James, you know, you know, James, and James, like, don't look at me, don't look at me. And Mike's in the front row. He's, and Peter's like, Mike, Mike, I was with you. We did that thing. You know, we really screwed up. And he's looking around and he's probably like. Are we seriously going to ask this group of people to live by all the laws that we don't hardly live by and that we have not been able to keep and that our fathers haven't been able to keep? We're going to demand that they do that? This law has weighed us down and we're going to put this on their backs, he says. Verse 11, he says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's the message, he says. Here's the message, guys, remember? We believe we're going to be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus as just as they will, meaning those non-Jewish people will. It's not about our works or their works. God has eliminated. He, he said it's about God's grace. And here's the point. God can purify a heart before he purifies a life. This is something we need to keep in mind. God can purify your heart, my heart, before he purifies and cleans up my life. Before he cleans up my marriage, before he cleans up my behavior, before he cleans up my, my actions, my thoughts. If God was not able to do this, then we all in this room would be in serious trouble. We all acknowledge at one point, God, I give you my heart. It's broken. It's bleeding. It's infected with sin. Would you change it? But God, I give you my heart. And God, he purifies that heart. He moves into our life. When we yield our lives to Him, He moves in through the person of the Holy Spirit. And He begins a process. That's what Peter's trying to say. Then at the end of Peter's message, James, he stands up. James is another one of the church leaders. He stands up. He's the brother of Jesus. He stands up and he addresses the crew. And he says in verse 19, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He says, everybody listen up. Here's my declaration. James is a big dog in the church. He says, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He's saying, you see, when people turn to God, they have not completed a process. They've just begun the process. This is the starting point. They're at that starting point. It begins with the cross, and then God begins to work out His plans in our life. Let's as a church, not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Let's not be like that church in Jerusalem who was like, hey, we've got to make sure they're clean and that they do church 
that they do life our way before we welcome them in here. We want to be a group of people that is welcoming to those who are outside, welcoming to those who, who are doing life independent from God even. We want them to know they can connect with God here. Does that mean that we're not interested in, in taking people to a deeper level of intimacy, learning to walk with God? No, we're really concerned with that. That's why we have groups. That's why we have encourage people to connect and challenge each other. Does that mean that we don't think sin really matters? You know, if we're not going to talk about... No, it doesn't mean that at all. But what James is saying is turning to God is the starting point of a lifelong process. It's where we start. It's where people start. And then James says this. This is really interesting. Then he says, he gives them a little bit more beyond we shouldn't make it difficult. He reduces all the requirements of the 613 laws and he says this. He says, we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what's been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What he's saying, James is saying, look, here's what we need to tell these new Christians. They should really be concerned about not offending their Jewish brothers. They shouldn't do these things that are really, really offensive to a Jewish person. Food sacrifice to idols, things that have been strangled, the blood. Those are offensive issues to Jews. And so what, what he's saying, James is saying, look, we should tell them, don't do things that are going to offend your brothers. Don't be offensive to the Jewish brothers that are in your church. And then secondly, don't be sexually immoral. Because all those people, or many of those people, were coming out of sexually immoral lifestyles. Places where there was worship to pagan gods and that their ritual worship was involving temple prostitutes and just a very sexual world. And so James is saying, look, if they can depart from that, they need to start moving in a new direction. He strongly urged them to, to leave that stuff in the past, to move towards Christ. But he says, look, these are the core issues. Don't be immoral and don't offend your brother. Then in verse 31, or in 30, it says, so they were sent off. So they're sent off with this little letter. They go to the church. They went down to Antioch and having gathered together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. That last phrase, you know, when, the, when they had read it, meaning when the new church Christians read the letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. It's more than just they were like, oh, good. You know, every man in the church in Antioch is sweating when they see the messengers coming. And they're like this, probably. <laughs> like with their foot towards the door. And they're linking arms like, Brothers, we'll go down together. We ain't going to have them. Because <laughs> they're thinking, nobody is going to do that to me. So they're, they're excited. There's this huge sigh of relief, and they all breathe easy. Oh, thank God. Thank God. We don't have to go through with the surgery. We don't have to follow the law. We're not going to be. And with that letter, a huge division, a potential division, is just diverted. But how the church deals with this issue is huge. Because the, the, the issue is still relevant today, and the consequences are huge. We've got to figure out, how do we pull this? How do we understand this tension today? There's three areas that we need to avoid as a church. Because if we're not careful, we'll do the very same thing. We'll start trying to do quality control on the people that can be reached in this church. Well, they can't come in here. They're not good enough. They don't look... They're not, they don't talk... And they, got the, they wear those clothes, they have those things, and they... You know, did you see them? I know who they are. That's the issue that they were dealing with. There's three things we need to avoid. First, we need to avoid the drift towards insiders 
and away from outsiders, every local gathering of believers will over time drift towards the insiders, being insider-focused. So we're always going to have to struggle with this us-and-them mentality. We're going to have to wrestle with how do we do that. The question, though, is, is it, you know, it's not trying to fix everybody. It's not trying to fix everyone's life beforehand. It's that we, we need to let God do what He's going to do in people's lives. We need to order our lives around following Christ. As people join in with us, God does a real work. He's the, he's the one that, that calls us to Himself. He's the one in charge of growing us. If He's the one doing it, He'll do it in our lives. He'll do it in their lives. But if we don't avoid this drift, then we will begin down the road to a very slow death as a church. We'll just be one of those churches who are only for church people. The second thing we need to avoid is the drift towards law and away from grace. You see, churches often drift to that place of categorizing people. And then they have a policy to respond to them. For example, the church in Jerusalem, the category was Gentile. That's the category. The policy is don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Here's the policy. Or here's the category, here's the policy. And our churches want to do the same thing. When you don't have policies in place, people get afraid it's messy. We do have a few policies. We have some policies that are really important. We have some policies related to our kids' zone. For the protection of our kids, we have some policies in place. We want to make sure that we've background-checked all of our kids' zone workers. We want everyone to know that if they're in there, they can rest easy, that everyone that's working in there has been screened. That's a big issue. That's a big issue in churches. There are policies that we're not going to budge on. We have policies for our staff members. We, we let our staff members know they're, high, they're more highly, we held more highly accountable on certain issues. We talk to them about that. We have issues or we have policies for even those who decide, I want to become a member. But for people to worship here, we, we don't want people to feel like there's all sorts of things they've got to do before they can worship in this place, before they can get to know God and connect with Him. And it's not that policies are bad, but... We don't want to just have a ton of policies in order to avoid messes. There is an alternative to policies. It's known as conversations. That's what Jesus did. He had conversations. Instead of having policies, if he had only categories and policies, he would have walked past most of the people that he interacted with. When he saw Matthew, this tax collector, there's the category tax collector, and the policy is tax collectors need to quit their job and do something better, do something else, do something right that's not cheating others but instead jesus engages has a conversation with him and says hey come with me matthew let's get to know each other let's go to your house i'd like to get to know you your friends and peter's probably thinking wait jesus he's a tax collector he's the category of people we don't associate with we're supposed to shun this group and jesus is saying we need to have a conversation He's probably telling Peter, loosen up, Peter. We're going to have a lot of other people that are in these categories that seem like they're outsiders. He's going to approach Zacchaeus, another cheating tax collector. He's going to approach an adulterous woman. And again, the policy and the category for that woman, you know, she's an adulteress. The policy is stone her to death. Instead, Jesus has a conversation with her. Because Jesus was all of grace and all of truth. So we need to watch this whole area. We need to have conversations and grace as we... It's messy, but as Jesus' followers, this is the way He's laid it out. The third thing we need to avoid is the drift towards preserving rather than advancing. The drift towards preserving. 
Like that, that need that we have to preserve what we have at this point. Now, some of you are newer to our church, and so this may not be as big of an issue. But if you've been around for a while, and you've gotten to know a lot of people, and you were with us through the stages of early church life when everyone knew everyone, you know, and, and you're thinking, you know, I really want those close friendships, and I want to have that, that tie that I had in the early days, and now with all these newer people around, I don't get that, and I'm getting frustrated at that. That need to preserve, again, that will lead us to a slow death. It's a struggle. Now, we do desire close friendships. We want people to engage in real life with each other. We have groups and we do things that hopefully will foster that. But it's not just about those of us here. If we make it about those of us here, we miss the mission of the church. The mission of the church is for those on the outside. When we have limited time, we don't want to be a church that drifts in that area. You see, there's some three final commitments. One, these are all just tied to this whole series. Let's be bold. Let's be bold in the way we invite people. Let's be bold in the way we relate to those on the outside. Also, let's err on the side of grace. This will be increasingly difficult as we grow. Because we want to know every, we want to, we want to be in the know on everything and we struggle. And so we're, we're going to want to restrict and put restrictions. But I'm so glad that God erred on the side of grace with me. That He, that, that he has accepted me. That coming to Him was my starting point and that He's been working out a process in my life. That I didn't have to come to Him with all my ducks in a row. I didn't have to have all my sin managed and stopped before God would allow me to break into a relationship with Him. That's His goodness. That's His grace. Let's always err on the side of grace. And then last, let's remain open-handed. Meaning, let's not just try to maintain. Let's keep having this edge of, we're going to remain open-handed. We're going to allow others to get involved. To get, Let's keep our hands open in this church. Let's keep this church open as we pursue those who do not yet know Him. I want to invite the band to come forward. And they're going to lead us in a final song. And as they come forward, I really would encourage you to consider... These three next steps. We've been reading through the book of Acts. These are on the back of your connection card and at the bottom of your listening guide. But you might check these boxes on the back of your connection card just letting us know that you're taking. Read Acts 20 through 23, one of the steps. This is just trying to read through this whole book of Acts as I've been preaching through it. I'm encouraging you to read through it. There's just a few more weeks and we're done with this book. I'd encourage you to read it completely. It's one of the... I think it gives a real historical framework for... The New Testament. The book of Acts is where, is where a lot of things begin to click in my mind. Because I see the way the church expanded, and then I read a lot of the books in the New Testament that, have, that were letters to the churches that you read about that were planted in Acts. So a lot of things begin to come together and converge in our minds as far as just biblical understanding. Secondly, do a time study to determine how much time I'm spending with, outsider, with insiders. This would be a really important thing to do, just to consider, you know, am I like that, that group of in the headquarters in the Jerusalem church that's trying to make my life just about hunkering down with all the church people and restricting and throwing rocks at the people on the outside and pointing fingers at their lives and saying, man, it's a shame, it's a shame. Or am I trying to engage people on the outside? Is there anything in my schedule that would... 
that would communicate that, that I really care about those on the outside? Do I do anything with people who aren't church people? Or is my schedule full of church activity, church people activity? If it is, I'd encourage you to reevaluate that. The church is to be a refuge. Not a refuge from the world, but a refuge for the world. And if our schedule is so full of church people and church stuff that we have no time, then we miss the mission of God as it relates to the the local church. The last thing is, join a ministry team at OCC to help advance the movement. If you've been coming around and you feel like, you know, this is my church home, this would be a great step to take. Get involved. Get involved in helping. We have teams that help tear down, set up, run audio-visual, greeters, refreshments. We have ways for you to get involved. We'd love you to get connected here. Let's pray together. Father, we 